And we are going to pick up in Genesis chapter 6. We're actually going to try and cover a lot of ground tonight because I want to try and get the whole story of this, this flood story, this epic adventure that goes on with uh, Noah's flood. I, I really want to try and get through chapter 6 and 7 tonight just to try and get the overview together. And I'm going to be gone next week. Pastor Dave Hall is going to be filling in next week uh, to pick up where I left off. And then my plan is when I get back to do some detailed recap. And so we'll see how that plan goes. You know how, you know how I am sometimes, long-winded and all. But there's a lot of great stuff in here. But this is, these are, this is a passage, chapter 6 and 7, uh, that's got a lot of big things in it. We've got giant people, giant boat, giant flood. Uh, it's just a, it's a chapter of epic biblical proportions, you might say. And uh, it's one of those, it's, it's these chapters, cha- they garner a lot of scrutiny, don't they? It's from the world especially, a lot of people look at this, even Christians today in, in churches. There's actually quite a few churches, uh, you know, denominations that don't believe in a literal flood. It's highly disputed uh, that it was either figurative and it's just simply not uh, a literal historical event or there was just local. Uh, there's a lot of people who dance around it and don't take it at face value like we do here, like we do here at Calvary Chapel. So it's extremely controversial because it's, it sounds pretty epic. It's, it's pretty huge. There's a lot of amazing things that go on in these chapters. And so we're going to dive in and, and take a look at what God's Word has to say for itself. And, uh, and see how we would interpret it and what we would do with it. And as we've seen all the way up to this point, everything has been by design, hasn't it? Everything has been carefully planned out by our Creator, uh, by the sovereign designer of our, of our salvation. And the story of Noah and the flood and the judgment and all of these things is no exception. Uh, so why don't we pray one more time and ask God's blessing on His Word as we begin in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story, this story not only of judgment and tragedy, um, Lord, just of great uh, falling away, but also of redemption and mercy. And we pray that you would speak to us in this passage as we study your word. May it come alive as you promised that it will do. And I pray that it would not only be an encouragement to our faith, but that you would speak to us in a very practical way as to how these things would apply to our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you that your spirit is with us tonight, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, Yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward. And then when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. And those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, first of all, it says the days of man would be 120 years. 120 years. Some interpret this to mean that uh, individual people won't live any longer than 120 years, but we can see historically that's not, can't be what he's talking about there. But if we do the math, we find out that this is clearly speaking of a time when, when God is talking approximately 20 years before uh, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were born. 
We know they were born right when he was 500 years old. We're told that in the previous chapter. And we're also told that the flood came when Noah was exactly 600 in the following chapter. And so it would make sense that 120 years he's speaking of the time when the flood would come. That's the, the, the countdown till the time of the flood, not the timeline of how old people will live from this point on. So just a quick note there. He says, My spirit will not strive with man forever. This word strive is an interesting word, and I thought it worth noting that it also means to rule or to judge. And it also, at one point, historically, was used as a, a sailing term. It meant to sail a straight course or a direct route. Kind of an interesting word, this word strive. But God is saying, I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to judge man forever. I'm not going to endure with man forever. I'm not going to have this simple straight course laid out for man. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be some changes coming. God's long-suffering isn't going to last forever. And so we get to the part about the giants and these sons of God coming down to the daughters of men. This is kind of a crazy passage. It's like, whoa, what is going on here? And there's two main ways to look at this, two main interpretation, interpretations of this passage in this section that I feel are of real merit. And I'm going to talk about both of those. I'm going to give you my opinion as well on what I think makes the most sense. But we're going to talk about two ways to look at this. First of all, that the sons of God refers to angels, specifically fallen angels or demons. That these angels came down literally to the daughters of men, to human women, and had, had intercourse, had, had relations with them, had children by them, and the, their spawn, their offspring, were these mighty, great men, these, these incredible um, hybrid humans that came about, um, the spawn of Satan almost, literally. And the second one would be that the sons of God is referring merely to the line of Seth, those chosen, that cho- chosen or godly lineage that was supposed to come through Seth, and that these... This, this lineage, in essence, betrayed their purpose and that they basically were intermarrying with the lineage of Cain and with, with those who were not following and honoring God and ultimately produced ungodly offspring and then just uh, wickedness ran rampant. And so there's those two perspectives that seem to be most prevalent. We're going to talk, first of all, about the first one, about them being fallen angels. Well, let's look at the words there. Fallen angels, or not fallen angels, the words are sons of God. The word in the Hebrew is benai Elohim, sons, benai, meaning son, or the one who carries the family name, or the builder of the family name, and of God, meaning Elohim, it's the generic word for God we see uh, initially in Genesis chapter 1, and so that is where the, those words sons of God come from. So the use of this phrase throughout the Old Testament, first of all, we look at that, if we look at the Old Testament as a whole, this phrase is used many times throughout the Old Testament in Sons of God. And it's, it's worth noting that without exception, when, when, the word, when the phrase Sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it refers always to angels. It, is, it always means angels, fallen or otherwise. It refers to angels, sometimes God's angels, sometimes demonic forces. But in the Old Testament, it does refer exclusively to angels. So it appears based on that, that this, that this situation is a result of the intermarrying of angels and human women. And we get these giants. The word giant there is nephil or nephilim. That's where we get the Hebrew word nephilim. Uh, this word nephilim is an interesting word as well. It can also be translated bully or tyrant as well as giant. 
And the root word of Nephilim is nephal. And it means to be cast down, to fall, to be judged, or to fall away. And thus we get the term the fallen ones. When we also have, have seen other, there's other um, writings, historical writings, books of Enoch, some that are not included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, they're referred to as the fallen ones, these sons of God or fallen ones. It's because the root word is literally, fall, literally fallen uh, from, from the word Nephilim. And so these men of renown, it says, these mighty men of old, these words also carry interesting meaning. Again, I'm kind of building the case for this, for this um, understanding of what is being said here. Men of old um, actually refers to uh, when it says of old, it, uh, generally a time, I'm going to read you the literal translation of the word, the original Greek me- or Hebrew meaning. It says, uh, concealed or a vanishing point, a time that is out of mind, eternity, um, essentially referring to the beginning of time or the beginning of the world. And so this phrase is one of the key phrases that many scholars have pulled out to help identify who these fallen ones are, who these giants are, or, or I'm sorry, who the ones, the sons of God are, and saying that, well, the angels, it seems to be referring to people who were of old, and this, word, this term of old refer, seems to refer to beings that were around from the time of creation, from the, t- from the very beginning, which would indicate that they were indeed angels. And so all this seems to add up that these were genuinely angels, fallen angels, um, demonic forces that actually came down to, uh, to uh, earth to marry women. And it says... That this this line of this line of thinking, another another uh, concept in it is that this intermarrying that went on, these demonic forces coming down and, and just uh, marrying and taking women of the sons of men, was actually a direct attempt. And this is, I th- I could see this being the case that this was a direct attempt by Satan himself to thwart God's plan of redemption by corrupting the seed of the woman, by corrupting that lineage that would ultimately bring about Jesus Christ himself, the redeemer of mankind. And I can see how Satan, in his plans to thwart God's plan, would, would think, oh, well, if I can just corrupt the whole human race, I can destroy that plan. I can undermine that plan. And it seems to be what we're witnessing happening here, and it's just a kind of a crazy thought to think, uh, that, that something like this would happen, that God would allow it. And what would that look like to, to actually see children that were, that were born and grew up that were, in essence, hybrid, demonic humans? Um, I can only imagine how fearful and mighty and just awesome these, these beings were uh, in, a, in a bad sense. And then... So that there's there's one interpretation in essence. That's the one that's the one line of thinking. That's the one I would uh, think makes the most sense. Quite honestly, that these are literally angels coming down and intermarrying with the human race. And this was one of Satan's first massive assaults on God's plan of redemption to undermine, to do battle with um, uh, the plan of God and His chosen people, His chosen line through through Seth. And we see it all throughout history. Again, we've talked about how we see over and over. Satan has made attempts to de- utterly destroy God's chosen people, hasn't he? We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it even in, in more recent history uh, through Hitler trying to destroy the Jews. Uh, over and over, uh, there's been this attempt to utterly destroy God's chosen people for the very purpose of thwarting God's plan. But God always preserves his people, doesn't he? 
God always preserves his promise because he ultimately is sovereign and will fulfill what he promises. Amen? So that is understanding number one, that there are these giants. And, and quite honestly, I don't know if you've ever tried to look up Nephilim on the internet. Anyone done that? You can get lost for a while, can't you? <laughs> there's some pretty crazy stuff on there. Uh, I mean, you'll find pictures of 36-foot-tall skeletons and all kinds of crazy things. And it can be pretty difficult to discern what's factual and what's fiction. With what you can do with Photoshop these days, it's, it's just utter mess. And so I, after getting lost in the weeds of that for a little while, I kind of just had to walk away from that stuff. You know, there is, uh, seems to be some pretty sound um, archaeological evidence of giants, and we know of giants in, in, in the Bible talked about even after Noah's flood. We know that we have found skeletons around, uh, you know, 10 to 14 feet tall, uh, that there have been giants. Uh, you know, 36 feet tall and all that, I'm not so sure. There's some pretty, like I said, there's some pretty crazy stuff on the internet, so be careful in your searches what you believe. I'm not going to debate that at all tonight. I'm not even going to get into that. But it's clear that there were great men, mighty men, and they were destroyed in the flood for the most part, these, these initial ones. Uh, they were destroyed, utterly destroyed. And men of that greatness and of that kind and type, I don't think we're ever seen again. We do know there were giants after the flood. We know, obviously, Goliath and his brothers, the sons of Anak, we read about those when they went into the promised land. There were other giants. Were they of the same caliber and type as these before the flood? I don't think so. But again, we weren't there, and it's pretty tough to speculate the details. Pretty amazing. And then the second, I'm going to talk briefly about the second way of looking at it. And I think there's a lesson to be learned from it, so it's worth noting that some interpret this to mean sons of God, referring to the line of Seth, and that they corrupted that line by intermarrying with the line of Cain and with those who were not honoring God. And so that's the idea, the premise behind this. And, and they tie in scriptures from the New Testament and also looking throughout Israel's history how over and over Israel was punished for intermarrying with, with foreign women, with, with women who served idols, with, with people who were not of the, of the Israelite uh, heritage. They were punished for that because inevitably they'd marry uh, someone who was uh, a pagan idol worshiper and inevitably they would be drawn into idol worship and then rebelling against God and forgetting what their God had done for them and bring punishment upon themselves, right? We see that over and over again. And then we see in the New Testament how we're told to guard marriage and not be unequally yoked. And there's all of that concept. And so the idea here is that, that the lineage was brought down and much, a vast majority of the line of Seth was corrupted because of this intermarrying that went on. And they were caused to abandon the things of God, just like we see Israel doing over and over again later on. <clears throat> Matthew 5.9 uh, And so they, again, they pull from the New Testament to try and justify this. And we see throughout the New Testament the term sons of God, and we've talked about this, the term sons of God in the New Testament does refer many times to born-again Christians, those who are born in the Spirit. Like Matthew 5, 9 talks about blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. Um, Luke 20 talks about how um, we can't die anymore for they're equal to the angels and they are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Romans 8 talks about it, Galatians 3 being sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where they justify that, where that's where they get that from. I, I think there's too much else in the text that would indicate that this is really talking about fallen angels. But that is the other prevalent theory. And I, again, I think we can learn some things from that because if we look back through it, 
there's some interesting moral lessons to be learned from this situation. First of all, we notice some of the mistakes that were made um, by these supposed sons of God if they were uh, supposedly just the line of Seth. We notice that, first of all, they chose wives based on what? What did they choose their wives based on? Beauty, their physical beauty, right? That was all they were looking at is, oh, they're beautiful, I'll take one. You know, and that's basically was the mentality there. And they uh, sought no counsel of God. There was no, there's no consideration for, for the honoring of God. They just saw what they wanted and took it. Classic case of lust of the eyes, once again. And then... They, it says they took all they wanted, all whoever they wanted. There was, they sought no counsel. There was no, there was no self-control there. There was this unbridled pursuit of their fleshly desires. So you sort of see the lust of the flesh right in there as well. And then lastly, we, it talks about how they're mighty men, how they, and I, and I told you again how that, that word can be interpreted, champion or tyrant. Um, but these people were obviously endeavoring to rule here on earth, and their entire pursuit was power and strength in the earthly sense. And there you might say you see the pride of life coming out. So even in this story, you almost see the repeat of the fall of Satan and the very thing that, that caused the fall of Adam and Eve and over and over again permeating culture now here, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is seen in this little story right here as well, in this intermarrying that went on and this utter corruption that went on. And it's the epitome of depravity. It's the epitome of just utterly walking away from God's design and just doing whatever felt good to them. Whatever was of their earthly pleasure, it was, it was okay. It was available, and they went after it. And it's, it sort of illustrates just the utter corruptness and abandonment of the things of God at that time. So there's something to be learned from both perspectives, um, but it does appear to be literally talking about fallen angels coming down Pick up in verse 5, Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So, obviously, the evil was pretty bad in that time. And Jesus himself said later on, remember, that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be again in the days of the Son of Man when Jesus is going to come again. So we know it's going to get bad, really bad. And it describes it here that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's just unending. There was no balance. There was no, well, I'll be good on Sunday type of an attitude. It was just complete abandonment to the lust of the flesh and to fulfilling rebellion against God, just completely evil. And that was what was the norm of planet Earth at that time. It, it, had, it had completely abandoned God. And it says, The Lord was sorry they had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now this is an interesting verse, verse 6, because it kind of makes us question God's sovereignty a little bit. You go, well, didn't he know all along that they would do this, right? You look at that and you go, well, how, well, how can God be sorry that he did something or sorry that something was going on or be almost appears like surprise, like, man, I can't believe they blew it this bad. I can't believe my creation turned out so bumbled and messed up. It, and so there's, there can be this misunderstanding of God and there's those who would mock God and his word would take verses like this and go, see, 
God can't be God. I mean, the fact that he is surprised by things and he gets all bummed out by things and he seems like uh, he, does, you know, he doesn't actually seem to be omnipotent and sovereign and all-powerful by things like this. But I would say that it's quite the opposite because you know, we see this consistency in the character of God throughout, throughout Scripture that there's something very special about the relationship God wants to have with us, that, it needs to, that he wants it to be real that is tangible, that God actually cares about us. And that's the part that kind of blows our minds, that God loves us. He's not just a sovereign creator. He actually loves us, that he wants a relationship with us. And because of that, it actually does grieve his heart when we blow it, when we sin, when we bring judgment on ourselves. He still allows it to happen because of free will. He's not surprised by it. But it still grieves his heart. And we look at the story in John 11 of, remember Lazarus? Uh, and there was Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And remember, he, he died. He got sick and died. And Jesus didn't come to town in time to prevent that from happening. Remember that story? And what happened when Jesus got there and he saw their sorrow? Jesus wept. He wept. And again, he's sovereign God. He knew. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead in a short bit there. But he still wept. Why? Because he actually loves us. God actually cares about our pain and about the results of sin in our lives. How mind-blowing is that? That That's the God we serve. That's the God who made us. He's not just this sovereign, sort of faceless being and force. He is intimately involved in our lives. He wants us to know him personally. It's personal to him. It's not that he doesn't know. It's that he cares that much. It's pretty mind-blowing to think of a God that, may, that powerful and that sovereign could also be that personal, but he is. And that's what I think we're getting a glimpse of here in verse 6 when it says that he was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved. He knew what he was going to do, but it still affects him. He still feels that sorrow because he's chosen to connect himself with us that way. It's amazing. We can't comprehend it. But that's the God we serve. That's the God who loves us. In verse 7 it says, And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So we see, and then it says, Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we see Noah was the only one really found worthy to continue Uh, He was the only one found worthy to preserve through this judgment that had to come. And it says that he was perfect in his generations. Note that he was faithful not only in himself, but he he was faithful to preserve that godly heritage by training his children, by making sure that his family followed God. He was a good leader, a righteous leader in his home. But talk about feeling alone in your conviction. Man, can you imagine what it would have been like to be Noah with the utter depravity and corruption all around you and you're the one guy that still follows God? You, you know, have you ever had that time where you felt like you're the only one that cared about God and the things of God? Or you're in an environment where you're, you're constantly put in a compromising position to choose between doing what you feel God would have you do and what everybody around you is trying to pressure you to do? Uh, we've been in that. All of us have, I'm sure, been in that situation. I know I have. And we have to make that constant choice. Am I going to serve God or am I going to let the pressure of man around me dictate my decisions? Noah felt that pressure more than, more than any of us probably ever will. 
but he was faithful. He was a just man and perfect in his generations. He walked with God. Let's get a little more insight about Noah from the New Testament. If we turn to Hebrews 11 again, he's another one of those hall of faith people that shows up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, and moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So we see that Noah truly had strong faith, not only because he walked with God for the present, but he trusted God for the future. He trusted God at his word. He trusted that God said something would happen, that it would. That Noah had great faith. And it says, he, by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness. He got to be that one guy through whom that righteous line would come. Second Peter 2, 4, for another verse if you want to jot it down. Second Peter 2, 4 and 5. says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So it even calls him a preacher of righteousness, that he wasn't just silent about his faith in God, that he shared it, he talked about it, he stood up for it. And it's clear because we also see that he was a, lead, a spiritual leader in his house. It says he was perfect in his generations. He trained up his children in the ways of the Lord. He didn't just keep his faith to himself. So we can learn from Noah. He was an example to us. He was a picture to us of what we are to be. And picking up in Genesis uh, 6, verse 11, it says, The earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. And I just kind of picture it like one gigantic Las Vegas. It's like one just big, ugly, sin city, dirty pit type place. And there's poor Noah sitting in the middle of it, just waiting on God for the flood, basically. And he's got to build this massive boat, and as we're going to see. Um, but it's just this one massive, violent, evil, utterly depraved place. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them on the earth. And then we're going to be given the... Specs for the ark, we're going to see how God is going to preserve Noah. Picking up in verse 14, it says, Make for yourself. So because of all this, Noah, here's the plan. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's about 510 feet, depending on which type of cubit you use. There's a few different standard cubic, ancient cubic measurements. So some estimate as little as 450, but most likely close to 510 feet. It's width 50 cubits, or about 75 to 85 feet, and its height 30 cubits, about 45 to 50 feet. So this is no small boat. And you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark on its side. And you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks, and it seems clearly indicated by this in the next chapter that this door was a massive door. This was a door that spanned all three decks. All three decks, this door was just huge. 
And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is the bre- in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Should be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing in the earth after its kind, of two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. And thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. We talked a little bit before about the flood, and, and I'm hoping to get into more detail, actually. Uh, I'm going to be gone next week uh, camping, and then the following week I'm, I'm thinking of doing a more detailed recap as far as the scientific and geological evidence for the flood, and we're going to get into some of that fun information. Not going to do that this week, but <clears throat> we've talked before in the past about those who doubt that the flood was global. They say, well, I think the flood was just local, there's really two camps, there's three camps. Sorry. There's those who believe it literally. Yes, the flood happened. It was global. It destroyed everything, but those were in the ark. And then obviously some fish, I'm sure, live just fine in the water. It's kind of what they're made for. Um, and then there's those, number two, who believed that it's local. And honestly, there's a, there's a lot of those in the church that believe that it was a local flood, that it was not a worldwide flood, as it says here in his word. And then there are those who just utterly deny it. They say, oh, it's a nice story, and uh, you know, we can't really take it at face value. It's meant to illustrate a spiritual principle, but it's, it's nothing more than that. It's not historical in any way. Those are those three camps. And <clears throat> I would say to you, I'm in the first camp, personally. I believe it was a global flood, that it is what it says it was, quite literally, and for any number of reasons. And again, I'm not going to get into all the fun scientific and geological data tonight. I hope to do that in a couple weeks, but a couple things we will talk about is just as surely as the Genesis account of creation is critical and foundational to many doctrinal things that we stand on, even the flood account is also the same manner. It is not just sort of this isolated story. It's very connected with scripture, and it's also very detailed in how it's, in how it's described, and it's implanted directly in a historical narrative, and it's meant to be read as such. And so if we take it, suddenly just kind of cherry-pick it and assume it to be anything other than historical, we've got a really serious problem with all of Scripture. And, and in here, I mean, it doesn't really leave us any wiggle room. It says it's going to go on to describe how the waters are above the highest mountain by about 25 feet. It talks about destroying all flesh and all all things in which is the breath of life. It, it's, it's very encompassing. It's very obvious. And then you have some inherent spiritual problems with a local flood because God promised that he would never destroy the earth in this manner. Again, you remember that? And we're going to see that later. Well, what happens every time we see a flood around the earth? Now, what would that mean? God breaks his promises, doesn't he? So clearly it could not have been a local flood because God would be a liar if it was a local flood. Because local floods still happen, don't they? Quite regularly, all over the place, in large and small scales. And he promised never to destroy the earth again in that manner. So I think there's only one way to interpret this, and that is to take it at face value. So let's talk a little bit more detail about the ark and what is implicated here. First of all, 
uh, says it's from made from. He wants them to make it from gopher wood. Um, you know, there are some outside texts that elaborate on this conversation between Noah and God, and seems to indicate that that Noah suggested, well, you know, we've got technology with metals and fabrication to use certain materials, other than you know, or, or, you know, that would might be good for this purpose, and uh, you know. Noah and God are going back and forth about this. And God says, no, go for wood. So that was a joke. Oh, man. The point is, we don't know what kind of wood it was. Yeah, ah, sorry. That was, that was a, a groaner. No, I made that whole thing up about the conversation between Noah and God. Um, go for wood. Some speculate it was cypress. We don't really know what kind of wood it was, quite honestly, because... The word that's used, it doesn't really have a modern equivalent, and the entire world was destroyed before the flood, and so the world we have now, it's quite possible that the type of wood doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, We don't know. A lot of things have gone extinct even since the time after the flood. So we're not exactly sure what type of wood this was. But there are some very interesting things about this that we're going to talk about. First of all, just to give you an idea of the size and scope of the ark, because we're going to talk a little about the legitimacy of this story. It's about 510 feet long, as we talked about, which would mean it's about twice as long as a Boeing 747. Uh, you could lay three space shuttles nose to tail on the Ark's deck. Uh, it's about a football field and a half in length, just to give you some perspective. It's a very large vessel out of wood. Very large. <clears throat> and there's an actual scientific study done about the seaworthiness of the ark's construction based on the proportions given here in Genesis. In 1993, Noah's Ark was the focus of a major scientific study headed by Dr. Sion Hong at the World Class Ship Research Center, Kriso, based in South Korea. Dr. Hong's team compared 12 holes of different proportions to discover which design was the most practical. No hole shape was found to significantly outperform the 4,300-year-old biblical design. In fact, the ark's careful balance is easily lost if the proportions are modified, rendering the vessel either unstable, prone to fracture, or dangerously uncomfortable. And those are the three points that they looked at in analyzing. This, this organization specializes in ship research and in ship design. And they look at three points. They look at comfort, stability, and strength. Those are their their three points. And the design of the hole and the shape of the ship and all the proportions all affect those relative three points. It'll either be more of this or more of that or whatever. And it's interesting what they found. The research team found that the proportions of Noah's Ark carefully balanced all three of these conflicting points that demanded stability, comfort, and strength. In fact, the Ark has the same proportions as a modern-day cargo ship. Amazing. 4,300 years ago, designed and we couldn't come up with anything better still. That's pretty impressive. I think God knew what he was doing when he gave Noah the plans. What do you think? The study also confirmed that the ark could handle waves as high as 100 feet, or 30 meters in height, quite, quite uh, confidently. And Dr. Hong is now the director, the, the, one of the, the lead researchers in this study, is now the director in general of this ship research center, And just to make the case even more sound, he is someone who claims, who holds to evolutionary thought, claims that life came from the sea, is not a biblical scholar. The study was not done by Christians. The study was done by a secular organization. 
and this is the results they came up with. And this was done in 1993. So there's research data online. You can look up uh, for more details about this. But it, this did not come from a creationist. This came from uh, a neutral organization, a secular organization doing this study. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Noah's Ark is what the word, God's word says it is. Also, the numbers make sense. There would have been well over 100,000 square feet of space in this three-tiered ark. We'd be able to fit anywhere from 520 to, it's equivalent to this, the cargo space of about 520 to 550 boxcars on a train. There's currently, it's estimated about 18,000 uh, major species groups of, of animals today. And many have gone extinct from the time of the flood to now. And so just to play play it on the conservative side, let's say that there were literally twice as much uh, species at the time, 36,000 rather than 18,000 like there is today. That was the case, and you compared it to boxcars, you'd be able to fit all 36,000, uh, a pair of all 36,000 in about 120 boxcars, and you have space for at least 520 on Noah's Ark. So was there plenty of space? I think so. I think so. And plenty of space for the eight humans and the food they needed and the resources and all of that. And to spare. And also, remember, you know, they, people who would mock and make fun, and quite honestly, even some of our, our cartoon versions of Sunday school stories mess up our mind a little bit too when we see these, you know, full-grown dinosaurs with their necks sticking out the window and, and all this stuff. They didn't have to take the biggest full-grown version of every animal, Right? Why couldn't they have taken babies or adolescents? They didn't, uh, you know, they didn't have to take the biggest and the oldest of that species. They could cert most certainly take the young ones, the babies, the small ones. And, but again, just for an average size, way less than half of the space would be taken up by taking a sample of every single species. So the math works. If you do the math and you're honest, it actually works out quite nicely. And there's plenty of space on that arc. So just some interesting facts for you. Um, the, the, the account of Noah's flood does hold water. <laughs> Full of puns tonight. All right, so let's pick up in chapter 7. I want to I try and get through the account of chapter 7 here. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come on into the ark, you and your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So God invites them into the ark. And it says, And you shall take to you seven. We're getting some more specific details now. You shall take to you seven each of every clean animal, male and his female, and two of each of any animals that are unclean, male and female. Also seven of each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep alive the species on the earth, on the face of the earth. And so first of all, we see that Right here, again, before the Levitical priesthood is set up, before all the laws and everything were put in place with Moses uh, on Mount Sinai and on, we see that here we're already seeing some of the details of the covenant and of the Levitical law uh, being carried out. And obviously, with all the sacrifices, there's a reason he has seven of the clean animals. Clean animals are used for sacrifices, so we need more of those. There need to be plenty uh, to fulfill the requirements of the law later on after the flood. So, you know, um, it wasn't just two by two. There was also some seven by seven going on. It wasn't just two by two that they came to the ark. 
And verse 4, it says, After seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. We see this number 40 show up quite a bit throughout Scripture, and it's, again, something worthy of note. Um, for instance, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights, receiving the law and the tenets of the Old Covenant from God himself. The spies, when they went to spy out the Promised Land, were there 40 days to search it out. Uh, the Israelites' punishment for their lack of faith was to wander in the, in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. Interesting. In Deuteronomy 2.7 says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. For he knows you are drudging through this great wilderness these forty years. The Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know that it w- what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And your garments did not wear out, nor did your foot swell these forty years. And again, on and on we see David and Solomon, their reign over over Israel was exactly 40 years each. Um, Israel was required as, a, as one of their punishments for not honoring God's law to allow the land to rest for 40 years. And Jesus himself, prior to beginning his ministry, he fasted for how long? 40 days. So the number 40, we see it consistently throughout Scripture um, for various instances, but it seems to really indicate, and from this passage I read to you in Deuteronomy, it seems to be this number of purification. This number that is this fulfilling of judgment. And just as it describes there in Deuteronomy 2 uh, and in Deuteronomy 8, reading to you how God was testing them and humbling them and refining them, working on them through that whole 40 years in the wilderness. Number seems to be the symbol of both judgment and purification. And that certainly is the case here with the flood. Is it not? Judgment and a cleansing of the earth, sort of a fresh start for continuing on in God's plan of salvation for mankind. Everything is by design. Verse 6 in chapter 7, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. And so Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. And of clean animals and animals that are unclean, birds and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. And then the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. It's a little specific, isn't it? A little too specific to be a fairy tale. On the 17th day of the month, that all the fountains of the deep were broken up, the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind, the creeping things that creep on the earth after their kind, every bird after its kind and every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark after Noah, two by two, all the flesh in which is the breath of life. And so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was on the earth forty days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased in the earth, and the ark was moved about the surface of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits, or about twenty, twenty-five feet, and the mountains were covered. It would be pretty hard for it to be a local flood and cover the mountains at the same time. 
What's your name? All the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, every man, and all, all in, who the no, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth, and only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Wow. What a massive, massive judgment. I want to go back through that really quickly and just unpack some important things for us to note there. First of all, that word ark in Hebrew is the word tabah. As a noun, it means a box or a chest, and some historical uses actually use that word to refer to a casket, which isn't very encouraging if you're about to get into it to survive. But as a verb, and also... Interestingly enough, it's also the name of Abraham's brother. It actually means slaughter or butcher. It speaks of sacrifice or death. So it's very interesting, the, the history behind this term used for the ark. It actually quite literally refers to this judgment and, this, and a sacrifice, I believe, really being prophetic because the ark is a picture of something. The ark is, a, the ark is definitely a picture of something, just as we've seen throughout this first part of Genesis. We're going to talk a little more about that in a second. Pitch. The word pitch here, it talks about covering the ark with this pitch, covering the wood, the gopher wood with this pitch to seal it. It's used about 70 times in the Old Testament, but only here in this one spot is it translated as pitch. Let's read a couple other verses in the Old Testament that use the same Hebrew word. For instance, there's a story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. And in verse 30 it says, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Did you catch the word pitch in there? No, you didn't. Because that, what's interesting is that word atonement is actually the same Hebrew word that's used for pitch here in Genesis. Also in Daniel's prophetic vision in Daniel 9, in verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The word reconciliation there in Daniel 9 is also the same word translated pitch here in Genesis. Very interesting. And all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, again, this word is used over 70 times, and never in anywhere else is it translated pitch. It actually means covering, atonement, reconciliation. And that's how it's translated in every other place. It's indicating this sort of this covering, this protective covering. The word literally means to forgive or to atone. It also has been translated to purge or to put off or to reconcile. Pretty amazing how this ark, this picture of really death and yet redemption, is covered in pitch. It's covered in atonement. It's covered in this thing that protects everyone inside from the judgment outside. It, this, this impermeable layer uh, around the ark that, that, that uh, Noah was commanded to coat the ark with inside and out is what protected him from the judgment outside the ark. It was the atonement. And it's a picture, I believe, of the blood of Christ, of the sacrifice of Christ himself, 
of salvation that God came to bring. The ark is a picture of that, and Jesus himself is the door. In John 10, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheepfold. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And I will go in and out and find and he will go in and out and find pasture. First Peter three eighteen says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And again in 1 John, another scripture for you, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. It says, And this is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or atonement for our sin. So this tragic story of judgment is also a picture of Christ and of salvation, of what Jesus would one day fulfill and come and bring to us, that he himself would be the door And he would provide the atonement, that covering that shields us perfectly from all the judgment of God. That we would be saved through that judgment and ultimately be righteous in God's eyes. It's sort of that picture of the righteousness of Christ that covers us. So again, we see the gospel once again right here in Genesis in this account. This historical account of of a judgment that was not complete. The, The complete judgment is to come still yet. But it's a beautiful picture of God's mercy still in preserving his people and of what he would ultimately do through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word, for how incredible it is, how every detail is perfectly aligned to point to your plan, to your glory, and to your love for us, that you intimately know us, that you want us to intimately know you. Lord, I pray that just as it says in First John that we would love you because you first loved us, that we'd recognize that you're a God of mercy and grace. Lord, that as it says here in chapter 7, that you invited Noah and his family into the ark, and you invite us now into your family. You invite us now to receive that atonement through Christ. And I pray that we would not only receive that invitation and walk in it, but that we would realize there's so many people around us in this world that are about to drown, that are about to experience your judgment. And that same offering, that same invitation is available to them. Lord, may we be inviters for you. May we invite others into this safety, into your fold, through you, Jesus, the door. And I pray for your blessing on the rest of this night in our fellowship. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.